I've been at Texas A&M this past week to carry out a test recording neurons in the medial prefrontal cortex of a rat using the neural pixels probe. These things are really cool and I've got six of them. The plan is to record action potentials in the medial prefrontal cortex of control rats and rats which model post-traumatic stress disorder during fear learning behaviors. This trip to Texas had a straightforward objective. I needed to build the acquisition computer, set up Spike GLX recording software, and make sure that the system works. Then I needed to implant a neural pixels probe about six millimeters into the prefrontal brain so that I could acquire the neurons I'm interested in capturing. The probe itself looks like a straight hair about one centimeter long. It's so fine that it can be hard to see. But in fact it has like 900 tiny electrode points situated along the shaft to pick up the activity of hundreds of neurons at the same time. These instruments are expensive and fragile, so getting one safely into the brain feels like an accomplishment. For the planned experiment, I will be chronically implanting the probe, so I'll be using head screws and dental cement to permanently affix the devices. In theory, the neural pixels probe can be recovered and used on another animal after the two weeks of the study, but they're so fragile that it will be difficult to do without destroying them. Lowering the probe down through the craniotomy is akin to playing operation under a microscope. If the probe touches the edge, I'm fucked. Removing the probe has to be done carefully, by hand, and the shank must not touch anything after it is raised out of the brain, so I took a different risk and conducted my test while the animal was under isoflurane anesthesia. This way I could capture some action potentials and get the probe the hell out of there without breaking it. The risk is that the prefrontal cortex is so suppressed under anesthesia that I might have failed to see any activity. The good news is that everything went well and I saw action potentials. To be sure, there were not nearly as many as I would expect to see in a waking animal. I recovered the probe, and I'm now ready to plan for the real experiment. Back at Michigan, a study just came out that is worth considering here on the podcast. The authors include Zerui Huang, Anthony Hudetz, and George Mashur. The paper is called Anterior Insula Regulates Brain Network Transitions That Gate Conscious Access. The researchers used fMRI as a measure in two different experiments aimed at discovering what they call a cortical gate for conscious access to sensory information. Here is a brief excerpt which provides their hypothesis. Huang et al. write, quote, A candidate brain area may be situated at an intermediate position along the brain's functional hierarchy where unimodal and transmodal operations interface. The anterior insular cortex has been recognized as a central information hub of the brain because it receives inputs from different sensory modalities and the internal environment, e.g. interoception or emotions, and it determines the relevance and processing priorities across modalities. Hence, it is plausible to hypothesize that the anterior insular cortex may play a role, a gating role, for transmodal integration of information associated with conscious access. However, whether the anterior insular cortex is the primary gate that controls conscious access has not been decisively determined using a rigorous experimental paradigm. Answering this question is arguably critical to understanding the neural mechanisms underlying consciousness." Unquote. The hypothesis here is not suggesting that there is a location in the brain which is the seat of consciousness, the way a Cartesian dualist might. They are suggesting that there might be a critical hub, a kind of crossroads between the parietal and frontal networks, which determines whether perceptual information becomes conscious. In the first experiment, they used the anesthetic drug propofol to modulate consciousness. Propofol is essentially a short-acting general anesthetic. The participants were given instructions to do mental imagery tasks. 
the researchers wanted to see which brain regions are responsible for disabling the brain network transitions that are involved involved in conscious processing. The idea here is that when we engage in mental imagery or attend to other perceptions, there's a switch visible in an fMRI between activation of the default mode network to activation of attention networks. They found that the anterior insular cortex, a component of the ventral attention network, is critical to this network switch. They propose it as a cortical gate for conscious access. Huang et al. write, quote, 26 healthy volunteers were studied using fMRI during and after intravenous propofol infusion. Participants were asked to perform three mental imagery tasks, tennis, navigation, and hand squeeze, plus a motor response task, squeezing a rubber ball by hand. A pseudo-randomized block design was applied comprising 15 seconds of tennis imagery, 15 seconds of navigation imagery, and 10 seconds of squeeze imagery, followed by hand squeeze within 5 seconds after hearing the instruction and alternated with 15 seconds of rest. The propofol infusion rate was adjusted to achieve stepwise increasing target effect site concentrations in 0.4 milligrams per mil increments. The final target concentration was one increment above that which first resulted in loss of behavioral responsiveness. The final target was then maintained at this level for approximately 22 minutes. The infusion was then terminated to allow for spontaneous recovery. Behavioral responses define the periods during which a participant retained responsiveness, pre-loss of responsiveness. Then there was loss of responsiveness and recovery of responsiveness. Two 10-minute resting state baseline and two 15-minute task baseline recordings were done before and after propofol infusion. Unquote. This is a clever research design. Propofol is a reversible anesthetic that sedates the subject in a graded way, resulting with a high enough dose in a loss of consciousness. Instead of using a report-based paradigm, having the participants press a button or say something when they perceive a stimulus, they instruct them to imagine playing tennis, for example. The pattern of activation which occurs when the participant imagines playing tennis is seen in the fMRI while the subject is awake and engaging in that mental imagery. In the case of playing tennis, the activation includes the supplementary motor area and precuneus. That's what they report here, and it agrees with previous studies. It's interesting that when we imagine doing a motor activity, areas of the premotor cortex are activated just as they would be if we were actually doing the behavior. The difference is that the primary motor cortex only acts in the case of actual motor behavior, such as when the participant squeezes a rubber ball. So in this experiment, the participants in the fMRI are instructed by the researchers to imagine playing tennis, then to do a navigation task, then to imagine squeezing the ball, then to actually squeeze the ball. They go through this sequence many times. As they proceed, at some point, they begin to receive infusions of propofol, starting at a low dose and increasing. Once they no longer respond to the instruction to squeeze the rubber ball, they are considered to have lost consciousness, and in time, they are allowed to return to consciousness by ceasing the propofol infusion. They come to respond again as the sequence continues until the experiment is over. The design of this experiment allows the fMRI to be used to look at regional brain activities during states of consciousness and non-consciousness. Analysis of the data indicates that successful mental imagery with its characteristic activations depends on what is happening in the anterior insular cortex, so they conclude that this structure is a cortical gate for conscious access. 
In the second experiment, the researchers utilized a backward masking paradigm to study near-threshold visual perceptions in awake participants. Here they used fMRI to look at spontaneous activity in order to locate a cortical gate which predicts future conscious access. They report that the anterior insular cortex appears to be the cortical gate they are looking for. Huang et al. write, quote, We further evaluated the anterior insular cortex role in conscious access in a psychological setting. Participants were briefly shown either a face or a scrambled face image, followed by a high contrast image, mask, using a classical backward masking paradigm. For example, in a near threshold condition, both face and scrambled face were, prevent, were presented very rapidly and immediately replaced by a mask for a longer duration, such that the mask could interrupt conscious processing of the initial stimulus. We determined the supraliminal, above threshold, and near threshold stimulus presentations by manipulating the duration of the target stimuli. For the supraliminal condition, a 200 millisecond target duration was used. Individual thresholds for discriminating a face from a scrambled face were determined by an adaptive staircase procedure. The participants were asked whether they recognized a face or not during both near threshold and superliminal conditions." Unquote. They found that higher activity in the anterior insular cortex as well as the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex and anterior cingulate cortex were associated with reporting that the face was seen. This is further evidence in favor of their hypothesis. The authors believe that they have identified a cortical gate for conscious access of sensory data. They manipulated the level of consciousness using propofol anesthesia in the first experiment. They manipulated the content of consciousness in the second experiment. In the first experiment, functional activation in the anterior insular cortex was absent during the period of unresponsiveness due to anesthesia. Further, they report that the switch between default mode network and the dorsal attention network was interrupted under anesthesia. In the second experiment, they found that activity in the anterior insular cortex could predict whether or not the participant would report seeing the stimulus. In the discussion section of the paper, the authors write, quote, Conscious access is the apex of cognitive hierarchy and is supported by multiple stages of non-conscious processing. Conscious access may fail in various conditions, such as when sensory stimuli are weak or corrupted, when attention is distracted, or when a person is sedated, or has suffered a specific neurological injury. Why does access consciousness fail in anesthesia? Our data showed that the dysfunction of the anterior insular cortex renders high-order systems inoperative, which may be the proximal cause of the disruption of conscious access by general anesthetics. This finding may address an important knowledge gap in why sensory inputs can be received, but not perceived, during anesthesia. The anterior insular cortex is a central component of the brain's salience network and ventral attention system, which is situated at an intermediate position between unimodal and transmodal areas along the brain's functional gradients. Anatomically, the anterior insular cortex is composed of unique clusters of large spindle-shaped pyramidal neurons in layer 5 called von Economo neurons. These neurons establish long-distance, fast relay of information through the cortex, Thus, the anterior insular cortex has the neuroanatomical characteristics to support the global neuronal workspace posited to enable conscious access. Functionally, the anterior insular cortex has been recognized as a multifaceted region, playing a broad range of roles such as introception, emotional awareness, visual and auditory awareness of the moment, attention, perceptual decision-making, cross-modal sensory processes, and cognitive control across many different domains. 
the key role of the anterior insular cortex seems to be identifying and prioritizing salient stimuli in the stream of consciousness, sensory information, and sending signals to the systems responsible for the allocation of top-down attentional resources to the relevant sensory rep representations. Furthermore, these activations of the anterior insular cortex probably operate non-consciously or pre-consciously." In the subsequent discussion, the authors admit that there is no way to distinguish experimentally access consciousness and phenomenal consciousness. They further point out the limitation that mental imagery and visual masking tasks involve a range of post-perceptual cognitive capacities, including attention, memory, and motivation. All of that may be true. The idea of access consciousness was proposed by Ned Block, and here it represents a paradigm for thinking about the contents of mind. Is the paradigm correct? Access consciousness implies that the executive modules of the cerebral cortex can do their work upon the content. If you show me a picture of a fish and ask me to tell you what I see, and I say I see a fish, then I have demonstrated my access consciousness. Not only do I see what you have shown me, but I can report upon it. I know what I have seen and I can describe it. If one were to use this as an assay in an fMRI experiment looking for the correlates of consciousness, there would be a number of regions of activity which correspond to later cognition rather than immediate perception. These would be the neural correlates of hearing the question, coming to understand the meaning of the question, attending to the subject of the question, the picture presented, recognizing the image, and producing language, in addition to the correlates of conscious perception itself. The brilliance of the mental imagery component of the present study is that the researchers do not need the participants to describe anything or to answer any question out loud, but they still require the participant to hear instructions, comprehend them, and to voluntarily engage in appropriate mental imagery. That's a lot of mental activity, all of which will make its impact on the fMRI. The authors report compelling evidence that the anterior insular cortex acts as a kind of gate. But what is on either side of the gate? Perhaps the conscious perception is present, but it cannot be recognized, attended to, or remembered without access to prefrontal cortex. The gate might be between consciousness and cognition, rather than phenomenal consciousness and access consciousness. For my part, phenomenal consciousness is the entire story, but that represents a major limitation in my conception of what consciousness is. For example, what is the difference between the consciousness I experience during wakefulness and dreaming and the state of non-consciousness which occurs when I am in a deep sleep or under anesthesia. The authors of this study demonstrate that propofol anesthesia shuts down the anterior insular cortex. They propose that this closes a gate between phenomenal consciousness and conscious access. I observe to you that this might really be the distinction between consciousness itself and cognition acting upon the contents of consciousness. A serious problem is here implied. What if we are always conscious in the phenomenal sense? whether in deep sleep or wide awake. What am I talking about? Isn't it self-evident that we are not conscious during non-dreaming sleep? Perhaps not. Imagine a flow of experience in which you do not recognize or remember anything which is happening. You cannot think about what you see or hear or feel. You cannot understand images or sounds as objects on the one hand or words on the other. There is no sense of curiosity to understand. There is no sense of concern or confusion. There is no sense of time passing or narrative. There is no sense of self or other, just a flow of sensation gone as soon as it arrives. Each moment is not evaluated in terms of the moment before, so nothing coalesces into coherence. Is this what it's like to not be conscious? How can it be like something for it to not be like something? It can't. 
I'm not suggesting that we are conscious when we are dead. And given what happens under general anesthesia, especially under drugs like isoflurane, which are used in the hospital, we probably don't exist in the conscious sense under this condition. But it's worth considering whether we are conscious continually across sleep and waking. If that is the case, then what is the difference between sleep with dreaming and sleep without? Might it be the cognition which enables us to react to what we perceive? It might. In the temporally integrated causality landscape, I propose that the neural correlate of consciousness is a large integrated system with smaller integrated subsystems nested within it. It could be that the brain's cognitive structures enable higher degrees of nesting, nesting within nesting. Access consciousness might amount to a nesting process which places contents in the context of other contents. A string of incoherent sensations without memory or attention or reflection of any kind would amount to phenomenal consciousness without access. Whether a, such a subjective string is possible cannot be established because it would not be remembered or understood. In the beginning of this podcast, back in the first episodes, I characterized human consciousness as having the following features. I said human consciousness is a unified composition of contents. The contents are specific and meaningful, and they exist from a point of view. Human consciousness is continuous in time. It is limited and coherent. These aspects of human consciousness are evident to all of us, I think, but how much of this human experience should really be accounted for by cognition? I think unity and point of view are indispensable, but what about coherence? What about specificity? What about continuity and time? Could I be a conscious being without them? Perhaps I do it all the time. How the hell would I know? I think, therefore, I am. Fair enough. But can I be without thinking, without knowing that there is anything, without it even knowing that I am? What if the line dividing consciousness from non-consciousness is vanishingly thin?